Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Welcome to The Favorites, the podcast from the Action Network. I am Chad Millman. We are coming out of All-Star break. We are going into the second half of the NBA season. All-Star break was glorious. The All-Star game was amazing. And I want to talk about that. We're going to talk about Rookie of the Year race that our esteemed panelists may be sweating. Those panelists, Justin Fan, our director of betting, analytics, a.k.a. the fan wagon, a cult status, beloved NBA better. Rob Perez, a.k.a. Worldwide Wob, senior writer here at the Action Network. Also, Twitter phenom, Matt Moore, longtime NBA writer, our senior NBA analyst. But first, here's the main thing. The main thing. Fellas, I got to explain the Elam ending. So the Elam ending, originally this was called the hybrid duration format. It was popularized by the basketball tournament, the summer tournament that uh, has been going on the past couple of years. Essentially, what happens is a a guy named Nick Elam, Dr. Nick Elam, who is a professor at Ball State right now, he's a basketball fan, he had a desire to eliminate the need for intentional fouling. The NBA adopted this for the All-Star game to try this format. Essentially, what happens is a point total is set and the game is played to that point total. So in this instance, at the end of the third quarter, Team Giannis was leading Team LeBron, I think it was 133 to 125. In honor of Kobe Bryant, the NBA decided they would add 24 points to whoever was leading, to the total points scored of whoever was leading at the end of the third quarter, and then both teams played to 157. Whoever got to 157 first won the All-Star game. It was an untimed quarter. You got to get stops. First team to 157 wins. It was amazing. And for those of us who were in the stadium, Wob was in the stadium, I was in the stadium, it was an incredibly intense atmosphere where like, you could see players jumping up. It really felt like something they cared about in a pickup game. Wob, you were there. Give me your take on what you saw and how you felt. A couple raw emotions and takeaways from from that game on Sunday in particular is I think the NBA has figured out the in-season tournament. They've gone back and forth here, whether they're actually going to do it, if the players will care, and honestly, will the fans even care? And I don't know much that could have happened in that in-season tournament to make the fans care unless there is draft playoff implications. But after watching this format, 
unveil itself. And you brought up the TBT, the, the basketball tournament, which is played during the summer. Not every NBA fan watched that or even cared about it, to be honest. But what this did was just bring a, a fresh, a freshness to the league that, you know, we've, we've never seen before with the 10 best players in the world play, making them play at this level. I've never seen an all-star game played with that intensity. And maybe in part it had to do because this was the, the Kobe Bryant Memorial game, but that ending just instigates all sorts of defensive effort, which is like people were out there taking charges, Chad. When was the last time someone took a charge in an all-star game? And when was the last time we saw the 10 basketball players, no matter what country you're from, in the world, on the same floor, playing as if it was a playoff game? Team USA versus Spain back in the 08 Olympics is probably the closest comparison that we've ever had. And it's funny that we got this from an all-star game. It was an exhibition. Now, it, it has some criticisms and critiques like everything else out there that's brand new. But in terms of like convincing people's minds about change, it did a great job. They just need to make sure that these type of games don't end at the foul line. If you're playing pickup and it's point game, you don't end the game at the foul line. That's just the language of pickup. So instead of adding points there, if it's point game, my suggestion would be to subtract points from the other team. So that natural basket has to be scored there to win the game. So that's very NBA Street Game Breaker-esque. That's my only thoughts on how to make this even better than it was. Matt Moore, longtime reporter for the NBA. Wob makes a great point. Like Kyle Lowry at the end of the game, multiple charges. Giannis and LeBron banging in the post at the end of the game. Giannis with a great block. Like reviews, substitutions, like situational play, all of it. It was the best of the NBA at the highest level. What was your takeaway? Yeah, it was awesome. I mean, this fundamentally changes a lot for what I think what the league can do. They're good at capitalizing on ideas when it works. It's really great to see them try something that everyone was a little skeptical of and have it work because the league needs so much innovation, I think, right now with where it's at. And having this kind of be a win is great. Uh, one slight correction, the nine best players in the world in Kemba Walker. Quarter, you, in the fourth quarter, you see the level of intensity. So like, here's just like a, a baseline example of it. The first quarter had 94 points scored. The third quarter had 82 points scored. The fourth quarter was 33-22, getting to that number. The intensity level just ratcheted up. Guys trying on defense. This is the first year I'm sad I missed the All-Star game. Like, I've always had a problem with the fact that they just don't try. And then this one, like, it really worked. Like, they actually tried. You know, Wob mentioned the in-season tournament. I think this opens up all sorts of possibilities for what the league can do with that in-season tournament. Like, maybe instead of going four full quarters in games – they do shorter tournaments. Like the guys have to play less. It's not as much of a, of a rest problem for them. They play shorter games going to a certain number and play it out that way. It turns into more of an exhibition, but it also might become fun, more fun. And each possession matters. This is the biggest thing. Cause I've been thinking a lot about why football and basketball are different. I've done this for years, but especially recently with my chiefs winning the Super Bowl and how much fun that was. Every possession matters in football and you're never going to generate that in the NBA but that's how that last quarter felt, and that's what makes for the best sport. I thought it was a win all around. Justin Fan, you may be the best NBA better in the world. You literally move lines the second you make a decision. You're gambling czar. Give me your take on the Elam ending from a betting perspective. Good for fans, bad for fans. What do you think? 
Yeah, I thought it was great for fans. As someone who's experienced 100K swings in DFS and sports betting for I thought it was kind of awesome that we're exposing the next generation this early on. You have these kids like sitting in the lower section, just sweating these quarters by quarter, just <laughs> play by play. And, and there's 100K in the line on each quarter. That was, I thought it was kind of awesome. But the biggest takeaway from all this was that stakes matter. It has to feel like something is on the line for players and fans to care. And for the NBA, the biggest thing here is that you have to take this and, you know, carry it to other aspects of your product. And really the biggest issue why we're seeing a lot of decline in ratings, 12%, 30% local television networks down, is that the regular season doesn't feel like it matters anymore. And that's really the biggest issue that the league has to resolve. And one thing you, you see here is that when players and fans are invested, when they feel like stakes matter, when there's something on the line, then they're going to buy in. And, you know, one idea that I like is that if you let teams with the highest seeds pick their first round opponents, I think that's a really great idea to reward regular season play. You'll have teams competing for highest seeding till the end of the regular season. And then honestly, you can make a TV event out of it, the way they do with the lottery, the, the draft for the all-star game. Um, how awesome would it be to unveil first-round matchups live? You have a, a representative from each team picking your opponent team by team. So for me, anything not at the core product of the of the NBA, like the results of games, should be geared towards entertainment. The NBA already owns the offseason. They already own social media with Twitter. So and anything else related to that should be geared towards entertainment and resolving the the issue that the regular season should matter more than it does right now. I freaking love that idea. The idea, you know, baseball is proposing this, right? Baseball is proposing that teams can choose who they get to play. And it potentially sounds disastrous, right? Because those teams, all of a sudden, you know, the one is choosing the four, and then the four can crush them. And it leads to actually greater drama. But the idea that this all of a sudden becomes televised, and it's like a draft, is pure social entertainment. Wob, I feel like your Twitter feed on the night of a draft where teams have to decide who they're playing would be explosive. Yeah, I mean, that would be as good as that when the first all-star draft and LeBron was out there picking players and Giannis and things like that. Like, we're going to watch the league no matter what, but Twitter is 11% of the population and NBA Twitter is only 0.01% of actual Twitter. So to get the mainstream audience there to pull those football-type ratings incentivizing the regular season is certainly a priority. And I honestly can't think of a better way to get the players to care than the ability to pick their first round opponent. Now in the Eastern Conference, you're you're getting the eight seed who's going to be 10 games under 500 regardless. But the fact that it makes players play hard and seeding isn't locked in in the third week of March is a huge difference. And the fans see that authentically and organically that these guys aren't trying, load management will go down because these games actually matter. So while it's simple on paper, I think the effects of that would be massive. Can you imagine the debates and stuff, just like the weeks leading into the, the final game of the season, which team should pick which team, and you have all this buildup to the TV event of when they're picking, and then the reveal and right after the aftermath and be able to just discuss right away what the matchups are without knowing them in advance. It's just There's so much that you can kind of build on and take away from. Also, the disrespect, by the way. Imagine the Lakers with the first pick in the Western Conference take the Houston Rockets just because they they have the big guys. How disrespectful that would be to the Rockets, even though they're technically like the fourth seed in the West. Like, that's a huge storyline. 
and it would make people want to watch, especially in the city of Houston. Isn't it funny? This feels like the best idea in the world for the NBA. But when Major League Baseball suggests it, it sounds like a horrible idea that's out of touch and Rob Manfred's an idiot. But if Adam Silver has suggested this, everyone would absolutely love it. I think it's entirely dependent upon the fan base and how the game is perceived. One thing I want to do before we get to our next segment, which is going to be about the teams that we think we want to be tracking through the second half of the season. I don't think we touched enough on the gambling impact of the Elam ending. And so fan, I want to get your take on this specifically, which is I had team Giannis plus six and a half. I knew going into that last quarter, they only had to score 18 points for me to win my bet. They were at 133. The game was ending at 157. I had to get to 151 with team Giannis. That happened. And like, for me, that was as much about the drama and the tension. Like the people I was sitting with, we were all on team Giannis. We were all cheering for them just to get to that 151 number. That was as intense as anything else. To me, that changed sort of some of the perspective on, on betting and even betting totals and betting sides because you're taking the fouls and you're taking the garbage points and you're taking those things that are pretty unpredictable out of the game. <laughs> I was obviously really engaged as a viewer and the more engagement you have, the more likely you are to bet on the game. I'd love to have something like, especially with the elementing, the ability to just live bet who we think will take the final shot and hit the game winner, for example, like just stuff like that. It just adds to the whole drama of the, of the affair. Um, as someone who had uh, LeBron uh, minus five, I thought it was kind of drawing dead almost the entire fourth quarter. So it took a little bit out of it. Even though they came back, they, they won by a couple points. Um, it was is not as, as great of a sweat for me in that respect. You know, you add the time on, you can add some garbage time free throws where they're intentionally fouling um, to give me a chance at covering. So it, it changing a little bit from, from my perspective, betting on the other side. But overall, it's just a huge win in terms of increasing viewer engagement. And, you know, obviously, the more engaged you are, the more, the more willing they are to bet on games. All right. Like I said, we're going to cover uh, the second half of the season, who we think can win it all with our panel in the next segment. But first, a quick story. I'm laughing because of who it is. A quick story from Action Network tennis expert, beloved Enigma raconteur, Daniel Scotty. So it's the 2017 US Open. At this point in the day, I kind of just needed a break, so I was like walking towards the small courts in the back to try and sneak a cigarette. But on my walk over, I noticed that on one of these small courts, Paolo Lorenzi is warming up. And if you don't know Paolo Lorenzi, he's like a 35-year-old um, Italian grinder, just like a complete pit bull, like nobody tries harder than him on tour. And he's set to play this Portuguese hothead, Joao Sosa. So, you know, within seconds, I'm sitting front row, courtside, if you will, with an exorbitant amount of money on Lorenzi. And as the match begins to play out, and, you know, I'm cheering audibly for Lorenzi as a normal person does, I notice that the people sitting directly next to me are, like, shooting me these death stares. Placard on their chair was, like, reserved for family of player. And since they weren't cheering when I was cheering, I recognized pretty quickly that these were, you know, Joe Sosa, Lorenzi's opponents, like immediate family. And like, as the match is playing out, I'm going to be honest, like I started getting into it, like with the dad, which is like sick. He didn't want me cheering for Lorenzi like at all. And like, I'm thinking to myself, like, you should take a cab over to like the garden, see what the Knicks have to deal with from their own fans every night. Like, this is nothing like, well, you know, welcome to New York. But 
There was a point in the third set, completely pivotal point, not only in the set, but the, the overall match. Four all in the tiebreak. Epic rally that ends in a Sosa unforced error, and I kind of just like let my emotions flow at that point, and I just yell, come on, and hold my fist out kind of theatrically like a three-point shooter would his release hand, and this completely set Sosa off. He immediately took like 13 steps towards the divider between like the court and the seats, walks right up to me, and is like, so you're betting, right? And at that point, I just like really wasn't about to lie to dude's face. So I was just like, see, see, with like this shit-eating grin on my face. You know, he walks back and you could just tell that his, he was completely mentally crushed. I just had gotten into his head for whatever reason. He goes on to lose like the next two points, lose the set, lose the match. Needless to say, I hightailed it out of that court pretty quickly and washed my back the rest of the tournament, but don't ever let somebody tell you that cheering hard for a bet can't affect the outcome. Okay, let's move on to the next thing. The next thing. Matt Moore, I want to start with you. The second half of the year, you're looking at this right now. What are the best odds to win it all? I hate it because... Like, the Bucks are the answer, and they're the answer I cannot take. I cannot choose the line in front of you. The Bucks are plus 275. I'm getting insane odds on a team that's going to win 70-plus. They have absolutely obliterated everyone. Chris Middleton shooting 50-40-90 this year. He's been one of the best shooters from each individual specific range. Like They have supporting talent. They have the best defense in the league and run at the fastest pace. The last team to do that was the 2015 Warriors. But I saw last year, and I saw that one team – gets one guy that's not a main threat in Fred Van Vliet hot, and it can absolutely derail everything. I like the Bucks in a matchup versus either of the West teams. I like them versus the Lakers. I like them versus the Clippers. I don't know if they can get past Boston, Miami, Toronto, because I'm too scared of Jalen Brown shooting the lights out or Duncan Robinson hitting like 19 threes in four games. I'm too worried about teams – like Milwaukee, that are geared around an individual Omega forward driving and then kicking to those shooters. We saw in 2018 with Houston, yes, Chris Paul's injury mattered, but they still could have won game seven, but those shooters went cold. And when that happens, the team's constructed like this, they are really vulnerable. And so, like, I think the Bucks have to be in any sort of position that you take. Beyond that, I'm probably taking the Lakers. I think the Clippers have the highest maybe ceiling, but I also think that they're more vulnerable to other teams in the Western Conference. They match up great with the Lakers. The Lakers match up with a lot of the other teams. I don't like anybody else out of the East with how the Sixers have just screwed around and it doesn't feel like their year. Like their chemistry is just not good. And that makes me nervous. We've seen that derail teams even when they're that talented. I don't think the Raptors have the guys to absolutely go in and get it done, though there's probably some value in their long odds. Like if I have to take a team, I have to take the Bucks, but I'm not going to feel good about it. All right, Wob, Matt brings up a really interesting team in the Sixers. They're about plus 1,300 now, 13 to 1, to win the NBA title. I'm starting to look at this team and think that they never figured it out. Like, I thought Al Horford was going to be such a good addition. Clearly, he hasn't made the difference for them. When you listen to what Matt just said, when you think about the Sixers, when you think about the rest of the league, how do you see them shaping up? And do you think there's an opportunity with them, or is it better with somebody else? First and foremost, nothing, and let me say, nothing makes me feel better than being on the complete opposite side than Matt Moore. 
Yeah. Thanks, buddy. Love you too. Last season, when I'm standing on my soapbox preaching to the world about the Toronto Raptors getting slandered to the point of reporting him to HR about the Raptors and Fred Van Vliet, watching them hoist the trophy was just a glorious moment in Wild. You Street. preach the Warriors, sir. I have the receipts. Okay. We'll deal with this another time. So here's here's the question. It's two questions. Who's gonna win the NBA title? The the overwhelming favorites, in my opinion, are the Clippers and the Bucks. But that wasn't the question. It was who are we betting to win the NBA title? And you bet numbers as much as even more so than you bet the team most of the time. And I am all in on the 76ers in terms of a futures bet. Like you said, it was 13 to 1. I've seen some shops that have gotten as high as 20 to 1 at some point this season. And the reason for that is they, on paper, are built for a championship. We know that. Like they have the star power top to bottom. Matt brings up a correct point there about chemistry issues. The fact that they still haven't figured it out yet is starting to get a little concerning, but they do have two and a half months. The same way that ace-seeded Laker team back in the day, Dwight Howard, that barely made the playoffs, like they never figured out their chemistry issues and it was ultimately their doom. So I, I hear you on that. But every time the 76ers go on national television at home because they've struggled on the road, whether it's against the Bucks, the Celtics, the Lakers, the Clippers, you name it, they are the best team on the floor. They have the best talent. They're made for a championship. Their smallest dude is six foot seven, and they can put anybody into 24-hour Pelican Bay lockdown. Like I'm talking Denzel Washington in training day speech lockdown. So for that reason, when the game slows to a half-court pace, we start, we start playing basketball in the mud here. I'm going with the team that nobody is scoring on. They have their own problems with scoring themselves. But if they're giving up zero points, the 76ers are built for trench warfare. And that, when you get to the playoffs, it's a different game. It's a different game of basketball. And I know this team is going to translate there. I promise you. I don't know if they'll win, but they're certainly worth the bet. I worry entirely about Brent Brown's ability to handle that rotation because he has not figured it out so far. I also worry about the health of that team. I worry about their perimeter shooting. Justin Fan, Wob has made a bold statement. What say you? I'm off the Sixers completely. And I understand what Wob's saying. I think they're all good points. But my biggest issue with this team is they cannot win on the road at all. And they're just turning the five two right now. They're not going to have home court advantage at any point in the playoff. I really don't see it. Like they've been a dramatically different team at home versus on the road. And when you're in the playoffs, <laughs> when you're the five seed, that becomes just a major issue. And I know there's some level of noise there, smaller sample, but we've seen it consistently when they've been playing teams above 500. They've struggled, you know, enormously this season to show any semblance of life on the road. So. That's still a huge issue for me that they have to solve before the, the playoffs start. I bet the Clippers at plus 350. I'll bet them again at plus 300. They're the best team in the league. Uh, they've only been fully healthy for four games this season. They've won all four games, including on Christmas against the Lakers. They're, they're the only team out of the big three to improve at the trade deadline. It's still really, really confusing to me outside of books having a lot of liability with the Lakers being a public team, why the Lakers are uh, the favorites right now. They have the best odds of winning besides LeBron and Anthony Davis, who is their third best player? It's not Kyle Kuzma, not Rajon Rondo. It won't be Darren Collison. Who is their third best player? Is it Avery Bradley? Is it Alex Crusoe? That's still a huge problem for this Lakers team. Their depth is just a major issue. And when you get to the playoffs, rotations tighten, they're going to get exposed. And they just don't have enough outside those two guys for me to, to really take them seriously. And so with the Clippers, 
we're heading into the NBA Finals, best of seven, you have to choose one player, I'm still picking Kawhi Leonard. And that's no disrespect to Giannis, but considering what Kawhi did in the Finals last year, carrying this Toronto team, Finals MVP, playoff time, I'm still taking him. I think he's the best player. You know, I'll take the best player with the best depth. They don't offer the best value per se. I think the Bucks probably do. I like some longer shots like the Celtics and the Raptors potentially, but I'm, I'm all in on the Clippers. Well, look, that is a great point, that, and it's a long-held axiom. When it gets to the playoffs, you bet on the best player to win the series. Matt Moore, why wouldn't I think about Kawhi Leonard and the Clippers instead of Giannis and the Bucks? You really think Giannis is going to be better in the playoffs than Kawhi Leonard? Despite how Fred Van Vliet turned into Steph Curry over the last four games. Throughout the course of that series, when Giannis and Kawhi Leonard shared the floor, those two teams were dead even, plus minus is zero. You put Fred Van Vliet and you put him back onto the terrestrial plane, and the Bucks are rolling in that series. It was really one guy flipping that series, and it wasn't Kawhi Leonard. Now, I went back earlier this year, and I looked at what Kawhi did versus Giannis, and it was extremely impressive. Like, it was awesome. Like, he did yeoman's work on him. Giannis is better this season. I also don't know if that's the matchup. Part of it is I don't trust the Clippers' rim protection. Their numbers are really good. I don't trust Montrez Harrell and Ivica Zubac to be the kind of rim protector that the Raptors had in Marc Gasol and Pascal Siakam guarding down low. Kawhi can hang, right, and he can bother, but eventually Giannis is going to get enough opportunities to be able to attack at the rim. And with the dump-offs and the ability to spread the floor and the cuts that they use, because they are using a lot of off-ball cuts now, a lot more than last year. That's like a sneaky part of this equation is like the Bucks use Giannis in a lot of different ways than they didn't last year. And like Paul George and Kawhi can't guard everybody. There are ways to get those guys moved off. And when that happens, you do have the ability, I think, to expose them. I think the Clippers are great. I absolutely think there's value in probably betting them to win the title. I do not think that they are as good as everybody has said. We've got reports of chemistry issues with that team, that they don't like each other. That was the feeling I got when I saw them in Denver. It was like, this team just kind of is there. Like, they're just kind of dudes that happen to be working together. Kawhi has not proven to be a great leader. And yes, Kawhi was amazing last season. He's also got a long history of injury problems that continue this season and popped up last year. That Raptors run was incredible. It was amazing. It was a once-in-a-lifetime story. But I like the overall strength of some of these teams versus the Clippers. Before we get to another thing in the NBA, let's go to Josh Perry, our very own secret weapon, who has won three bets on the Corn Ferry Tour, the Development League for the PGA. He has been on fire. He's going to tell us how he's doing it. So for me, golf betting is more of a marathon. With the PGA Tour, there's not really an off-season. They have a couple weeks in December, but outside of that, it's basically every single week. I don't really dabble too much with the other sports, not really doing a whole lot of NBA or NFL betting. It's really just golf 24-7. With that, it's really important just to not get too invested in any event or any one tournament or any one player. You're always uh, just looking for the values on the board. It's it's more about playing numbers and site shopping around, finding the best odds. With other sports, you're looking for a half point here, a half point there. With golf, you could find a guy who's 50 to 1 at one book, 80 to 1 in another book. It's important to, to really do your shopping around with that sort of stuff. It's about finding those values and not straying too far, not getting overly invested. If you hit a 40 to one bet at the masters, it's going to pay you the same as a 41 bet at the Houston open. Like they all, they all pay the same for me. I kind of have it all balanced out that way. Balance is key. Uh, and just giving yourself a chance there. And if, and if everything goes right on a Sunday and, and guys get hot and make a few putts and then we have a chance over the long haul to, 
pull out a few winners there and hopefully come out ahead. All right, we are back. Let's do another thing. Another thing. Justin Fan, Worldwide Wob, Matt Moore. Here's something that's both annoying me that I'm kind of getting over, but I'm annoyed about mostly. Zion is going to win Rookie of the Year, and he's been a great value bet, and he's played 10 games, but he's been the second coming, and I so want Ja Morant to win it because I think that your ability to play the entire season should matter. Justin Fan, am I wrong to care about this? Yes, you are dead wrong because I think Zion pretty much drawing dead at this point. And we saw we have precedent for this actually because you look at the 2017 Rookie of the Year race with Joel Embiid. He played 31 games, and this Rookie of the Year competition is pretty straightforward. Like you add up points, rebounds, and assists, and that's pretty much whoever has the most total in terms of their average usually wins in in a given year. And in 2017, Joel Embiid almost had double the combined points, rebounds, and assists as Malcolm Brogdon did. And Brogdon still won, and Bead finished third. Zion's going to play 34 games max this year. He's played 10. The Pelicans have 25 left, including three back-to-backs, which will sit. It's very comparable. Zion 34 this year, and Bead 31 um, in 2017. Lost in all of this is, I think there's, this is just a massive John Morant disrespect. This isn't Malcolm Brogdon here where he's a placeholder, where he's in first just because he's playing most of the season. He was pretty close, I would say, to being on on the All-Star team this year. He wasn't a Devin Booker-level snub. He wasn't there with Paul George and Carlton Towns. But you added, you know, four or five more spots, and he's right there. He's in the conversation. That's how good a season he's having. And for a point guard to come in right away, a position with the the biggest learning curve by far out of the five, to have this type of season right away is extremely impressive. And we, we've seen these, obviously, these 30-plus point games from Zion. John Marin just had a triple-double recently, just before the All-Star break. So um, I think this one's pretty much shut and closed. John Morant would have to miss, I think, most of the second half for this one to, to become close. Wob, what do you think? What sports book do you place your action at, Chad? I place it at uh, many, but uh, PointsBet is one of the ones that I use. Okay. Well, in this case, I would like you to skip going to PointsBet because I would like to take your action on this. Uh, <laughs> I cannot believe the words that came out of your mouth after you said favorite to win. I, how is the answer not John Morant? Justin brought up all the all the statistics and precedent as to why. Like John Morant is – it's aggressive to say he's better right now, but John Morant is hands down – going to be Rookie of the Year. And the one thing Justin forgot in that explanation was the Grizzlies are going to be in the playoffs. Like, they're a good team. They're above 500. And Zion plays on Gentry Ball Pelicans seven and a half games back. And a part of the reason why Zion's stats are so inflated is because Gentry Ball preaches no defense whatsoever. Every score is 135 to 138 in the favor of the other team. So, of course, when you score 135 points, every player on the team is going to put up 20 and 7. So, Job being a point guard, his usage is going to continue to remain through the roof because the ball is in his hands. He's the most talented player on the floor. And once again, his team is actually good. That man is going to win Rookie of the Year pending a suspension or drastic injury. Well, listen, I love that you're steamed about it. I am too. Like, I'm annoyed that there's even a conversation that Zion Williamson is going to be in contention for Rookie of the Year. I agree with you that Ja Morant should get it, that he's earned it, that he deserves it, that he's a phenomenal player. Matt Moore, are you going to take the other side or are you going to pile on? 
So I, I just want to say up front that I agree with absolutely everything that fan said. I will make you the argument just for the sake of, of this podcast because I do have the argument. Okay. Memphis faces the number one toughest strength of schedule down the stretch. For the last 30 games, they have the toughest strength of schedule. Okay. They're going to face better defenses. Jaw's probably going to get hit with a couple of, of tough games. He's an injury risk to a certain degree because no player I've ever seen lands as scary as he does. He literally like makes me like grab my chest with fear for him when he lands. It's terrifying. Zion is averaging 22 points in 27 minutes per game with a minutes restriction for some of that. He's also averaging eight boards, two assists, shooting 58% from the field, 36% from three, though most of that's inflated from his first game, and a mediocre 65% from the line. The Pelicans have the 30th ranked strength of schedule. They have the easiest schedule from here on out. There's a reason why 538 predicts them to make the playoffs. You have to think about these things in terms of the voter block. Don't get caught up in who should win. That doesn't matter. You have to put yourself in the minds of the voters. The voting block is made up of analysts, TV personalities, and beat writer reporters. The analysts are going to vote Ja. He's getting that chunk of votes. That's probably 30% of the electorate. The other like 70% is probably going to be pretty split if Zion continues this pace. The beat writers will go for narrative. And the TV guys will go for who's on national TV more and Zion's on national television more. If he gets them into the playoffs and the Grizzlies fall out and he winds up averaging 25 and eight and the Grizzlies slip a little bit and Jaws slips a little bit, there are going to be a people that will at least start getting into the vote totals and it might wind up getting chopped off. There is an argument to me that because the number is high enough for the guy that was the presumptive number one winner, there's probably, maybe, you can argue a little bit of value on this. Matt, that is so well thought out, so (laughs) elegantly detailed. If that happens, I'm going to be so irritated. It's like, I don't know why this thing is sticking in my craw. The whole idea that this guy can come in and play 34 games when John Morant is playing like Iverson. Like, he is throwing his body at the rim just recklessly I actually worry about it and I also I actually worry that like Zion and John Moran are two of the more dynamic players we've had enter the league in a long time and Ja looks like he's so brittle he's not going to last more than three years and Zion looks like he's sort of too heavy for his body and I'm worried that he's just gonna like his tendons are gonna tear from the rest of his bones and like I worry about all this stuff but if John Morant doesn't win this rookie of the year award I'm gonna be supremely angry about it you all stayed quiet because you're all seething in anger, as a lot of fans are. I want to do one more, one more segment before we get to our final segment with our panelists, which is going to be fan trivia. We have a fan on the line, a longtime fan of the podcast, has a trivia question about betting the NBA. He's going to ask our panelists. He's going to stump them. But first, in a regular segment for the favorites, I asked Matt Mitchell, our intrepid producer who lives in Milwaukee, to go into the hearts of the Midwestern streets and ask fans what they think of how baseball is handling the punishment of the Houston Astros in the sign-stealing scandal. Matt, take it away. We've heard from gambling experts, but what about everybody else? Let's talk with totally normal Midwestern idiots. Are you familiar with the Astros cheating scandal? I am familiar with the Astros cheating scandal, yes. What do you think of the punishment they received? Have they even been punished? doesn't seem like they really got punished at all. If you could punish them, what would you do? Uh, I don't know if taking away the World Series is too much, but more than they've been punished, I think. 
I feel as though you can't really take away their ring or their championship. But as a man and as a man with pride and honor, you're always going to have that tarnish on your name. It's the same. It goes back like, did you really win it fair and square? And that's always going to be on your record. It's always going to be that, you know, that one thing that you got it, but you really didn't. If somebody cheated like this at your, at your job, how would you punish them? How would I punish them? Well, I'm not a manager. I think it's just disgusting. You don't feel like they were properly punished? No. Being mic'd up and the signs and how uh, it's just gross that everyone was involved. If somebody did this at your job? They'd all have to be fired. What is a fair punishment for players that cheat like that? Players that cheat like that should be fined and should be fired. If somebody cheated like that at your job, what would be a fair punishment? A fair punishment would be termination and cutting them at the wrist. Oh, cutting, <laughs> cutting at the wrist like cutting off their hands? Cutting off their hands. They can't steal anymore if they do that. All right, it's time for our weekly favorite trivia challenge. On the phone, longtime listener, host of uh, the Syndicates podcast, inspired by the Favorites podcast, one of the original members of our syndicate from upstate New York, Mr. Eddie Zemitis. Eddie, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. It's good to catch up with you again. As soon as I sent out a uh, tweet a couple weeks ago asking for trivia questions, you weighed in quickly, and so I didn't even send one this week because I was so sure you would have a good trivia question. You have a trivia question that you think can stump us. Let's hear what you got. For the 2019-2020 NBA regular season, there are two teams with a perfect record against the spread as a road favorite. Name one of those two teams. Justin Fan, you can go first. Let me think. Um, I'm going to say the Thunder. Worldwide Wob, you're up next. We get two guesses, right? Two guesses. Guess one of the two teams. Memphis Grizzlies and Orlando Magic. Interesting. Interesting. Matt Moore. The New York Knicks and the Charlotte Hornets. Okay, I'm going to go too. I'm going to go with the Boston Celtics and the Indiana Pacers. Eddie Zemitis, did any of us win? There is a winner. Matt Moore. Did you Google that? I swear to God, I didn't. Hand to God, I did not. Matt Moore, how did you did think it, about it? What were you trying to figure out? It has to be a team that hasn't been a road favorite much. It could not be the Pacers when they're going to be favored versus all the bad teams and they're going to have high lines. It had to be teams that are only going to be favorites like a few times. The Knicks won in a quote-unquote road game in Brooklyn, and that was what kind of like led me to them. As I was like, I bet they've only been a favorite like two or three times the Hornets are never going to be favored, and the Hornets have been were really good against the spread, especially early in the season. So that was why I went with those two teams. Which one won? Both of them. <laughs> wow! You hit both of them. I was like, that's why I was I was so confused. I'm like, there's no way he, he got this without looking it up. I swear. Four and zero against the spread for the Knicks as a road favorite, and the Hornets. Yeah, they're one and zero against the spread as a road favorite. So small sample size is exactly what uh, was the key to this answer. That was phenomenal. I was trying to use your theory. That's why I actually chose the Pacers. When you said the Knicks and the Hornets, I honestly thought like, oh, he doesn't care. He's given up. Like he's just like throwing things against the, the, the wall. No, you got to go with the teams that have only done it a few times. If you're like, if you're a road favorite, like it's, that's a hard situation to cover. That is too, too good. Now it's time for this week in gambling notes. I like to call it twig notes. If it sounds familiar to anybody of a certain age, 
It's because I totally stole it. And appropriately, we'll start with baseball. Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred this week continued his disastrous run as commissioner. (laughs) How he has managed the Houston Astros sign stealing has just gotten worse and worse. This week, in an interview with ESPN, he said two things that stood out. One, he said that he didn't have to punish the Astros because fans were going to humiliate them so much it didn't matter what their punishment was from the league. So essentially, he's saying, hey, I'm going to abdicate responsibility to the fans. Number two, he said, it doesn't matter if he stripped them of their World Series because the trophy is just a piece of metal. Not surprisingly, Justin Turner of the Dodgers said, I don't know if he's ever won anything his entire life. Not mentioned in any of this. The betters who lost when they bet on the Dodgers and the Dodgers themselves, no remorse for them from Rob Manfred. Meanwhile, in Europe, UEFA has banned perennial power Manchester City from play in the next two Champions League tournaments. The reason? Violating financial fair play rules. Take a lesson, Rob Manfred. That is how you punish a team that doesn't play by the rules. In other courts, if you're confused by this year's college hoop season, you're not alone. North Carolina is now a permanent fade, and Roy Williams is on pace to win fewer than 20 games for the third time in his career. The other two, his first year at Kansas and his first year at North Carolina. Meanwhile, the best teams in the country are Baylor, Gonzaga, both at 10 to 1 to win the title, San Diego State at 20 to 1, and who is the odds on fave to win the Wooden Award? A 6'9 forward from Dayton named Obi. This is not Zion Williamson's NCAA. Finally, this week in gambling, pitchers and catchers reported last week. For some, that means renewed hope and opportunity. For others, it means future values. A boatload of Action Network's finest last year had the Nats at long odds. They cashed quite a bit. This year, I'm sensing a lot of enthusiasm for the Reds at 50 to one. If you need more details, Listen to the latest Action Network podcast previewing the National League. Personally, I'm rooting for the Dodgers. They deserve to get their hands on some hardware. This has been Twig Notes. That'll do it for this episode of The Favorites. My thanks to Justin Fan, Rob Perez, Matt Moore for joining us as panelists. My thanks to Eddie Zemitis. Trivia Challenge fan calling in. Before we go, I think we need to check in with Action Network CEO, Patrick Keene. I'm always curious to know what my boss thought of the work his content team put together. I don't know what you to pull this amateur bull trap, all right? Do you hear me? Do you understand me? All right, that is officially our show. Thank you for listening. Download from iTunes, from Spotify, wherever... You get your podcast. Until next time, love you.